We are in the book of Acts, chapter 24. If you have a Bible, you can open up to Acts chapter 24. We've been uh, going through it for a while, and we're picking up here in Acts 24. So I'm going to read the text, and then uh, we will pray and dive in. Here at Remedy, uh, we, we stand. So if you're able, we'd love for you to stand and honor God's word as we read it. And then we will pray and jump in. So we're starting at Acts chapter 24. We're going to do the whole chapter today, verse, 21, or verse 1 through verse 27. Uh, after I finish reading, I'll say this is the word of the Lord. And you'll respond by saying, thanks be to God. And you're, of course, thanking the Lord that he would be so kind to give us his word. But you're also, uh, as saying thanks be to God, in your heart and in your mind, signaling to the Lord, the things I hear today, the things you teach me today, I want to be obedient to them as well. So I just don't want to hear them, but I also want to be obedient to them. So starting at verse 1, <clears throat> my voice is still changing. After five days, the high priest Ananias came down with some elders and a spokesman, one Tertullus. They laid before the governor their case against Paul, and when he had summoned Tertullus, began to accuse him, saying, Since through you we enjoy much peace and silence by your foresight, most excellent Felix, reforms are being made for this nation in every way and everywhere. We accept this with all gratitude. But to detain you no further, I beg you in your kindness to hear, hear us briefly. For we have found this man a plague, one who stirs up riots among all the Jews throughout the world and is a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. He even tried to profane the temple... But, he, but we seized him by examining him uh, yourself. But by examining him yourself, you'll be able to find out from him about everything of which we accuse him. The Jews also joined in the charge, affirming that things were so. And the governor had nodded to him to, to uh, speak. Paul replied, Knowing that for many years you have been a judge over this nation, I cheerfully make my defense. You can verify that it is not more than 12 days since I went up to worship in Jerusalem. And they did not find me disputing with anyone or stirring up the crowd, either in the temple or in the synagogues or in the city. Neither can they prove to you what they bring up against me. But I confess to you that according to the way which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down in the law and written in the prophets, having a hope in God which these men themselves accept, that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. So I always take pains to have a clear conscience toward both God and man. Now after several years, I came to present to bring alms to my nation and to present offerings. And while I was doing this, they found me purified in the temple without any crowd or tumult, but some Jews from Asia, they ought to be here and uh, they ought to be here before you to make an accusation or they should or they have anything against me or let the, these themselves say what wrongdoing they have found when I stood before the council. Other than this one thing that I cried out while standing among them, it is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you this day. But Felix, having a rather accurate knowledge of the way, put them off, saying, When Lysias, the tribune, comes down, I will decide your case. Then he gave orders to the centurion that he should be kept in custody, by ha but have some liberty that none of his friends should be prevented from attending his needs. After some days, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish, and he sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. And he reasoned, and as he reasoned about righteousness, self-control, and coming judgment, Felix was alarmed and said, Go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I will summon you. At the same time, he hoped that money would be given him by Paul. So he sent for him often and conversed with him. When two years had elapsed, Felix was succeeded by Portius Festus. And desiring to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul 
in prison. It's the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can be seated. Lord, be with us today as we study your word. I pray that you would help me speak with uh, clarity and that um, these things that we see wouldn't just be learned, but also applied into our hearts and that we look at the evangelist Paul and as he is always desiring to proclaim your word, that we can see uh, what he does and that we can also be encouraged by it and that we can draw some things from it to apply in our daily lives as we are doing evangelism. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, so as I was just thinking, the ooh is feedback. So that's the word I was looking for. Anyway, um, so this is, not the, uh, this is not the same kind of sermon uh, as normal where it's, it's, it's really easy as you're going through the narrative sometimes to kind of pick out uh, big things and say, here's, here's something, here's something, here's something, and you can kind of ex- uh, exposit it in a certain man- easy manner. This, this is a lot of things going on. And so uh, we're going to go through it. And as we're going through it, there's just really two big things I want you to see, two real big things I want you to see. And you, you can, as we read it, see what's going on. One is Paul uh, in his trial uh, when he's before Felix and this trial he has and this kind of back and forth he has when Tertullus is the lawyer and he's on trial and then Paul makes his speech, that, that one big speech or that one big section, which is really the very first 21 verses. And then the second section, starting at verse 22 and following, whenever instead of he's before Felix in a trial setting, whenever he's more having conversations with Felix uh, in a more private setting. So uh, there's, there's two settings where Paul is, is doing evangelism nonetheless and how we can see these two things that happen to Paul uh, can, be, can serve as some bit of an encouragement for us. Now, this is thus far, as we're going through this last portion of the book of Acts, uh, the, the third of kind of five different speeches slash trials that Paul's going to have. We're in, we're in the third one. Uh, the first two were with Israel. We, we saw that. And now he's starting on these last three. And these last three are going to be more specific with Rome rather than Israel. The first, the first one was with the Jewish crowd in chapter 21. The second one was with the Sanhedrin that we saw in verse 23. And now these next three are going to be with Rome starting today with Felix and then Festus and then King Agrippa. Um, and so as we're looking at these today, chapter 24 today, as I said, I think that it can serve as an encouragement. We all know that the Lord has told us all to go make disciples. We know that we're supposed to do evangelism. This is uh, whenever we tell people the evangel, the good news. We, we try to convert them to Christianity. There shouldn't be any big surprise if you're a Christian that you're supposed to be doing that. Or if you're not a Christian, that we're trying to do that. That's, that's, that's uh, pretty common knowledge. And that's because... Uh, we understand the ramifications of not doing that is that you go to hell, you don't receive forgiveness from Christ, and we don't want that. We love everyone, and we don't want that for anyone. And so uh, here, we know that if you've ever done that, you've ever tried, it doesn't work 100% of the time. It just doesn't, right? And so I'm taking this as a uh, kind of the big two pieces as encouragement because we're going to see Paul. I mean, this is Paul. Not, you're not, not Joe Blow missionary. This is not that every Joe, missionary is a Joe Blow. They're all awesome. But like this is Paul doing mission work. And as he's doing it, he's, he's not really successful. As a matter of fact, we see in this first section, uh, he's on trial. So he's receiving some level of persecution for doing evangelism. That should be encouragement for you. That if you're ever going to receive any kind of persecution for evangelism, for trying to tell people about Jesus, it probably won't be on trial. But nevertheless, it might be uh, some kind of persecution. Paul himself experienced it. So we're going to see the kind of the first level of encouragement is that even Paul is persecuted for doing evangelism. So we'll we'll look at some of the things that are specific here. Uh, If you remember, Paul was in Jerusalem 
and uh, he left Jerusalem, and it, it, they, they say went down, but it's really north for us, but it's because it's on a hill, and he goes down. So he goes into Caesarea, which is more on the coast, uh, and as he's there, the, the, a letter was sent by Claudius Lysias. You can see that in 2326, Claudius Lysias was the, the Roman uh, person in, Jer- in Jerusalem that was overseeing the, the area right there, and he, he couldn't find any fault. We saw that especially in verse 29, that he, he says that there's nothing that deserves death uh, for Paul, and he sends this letter to Felix for Felix to hear this, because Felix is a little bit more important than him, than Claudius Lysias, and so he sends him to Felix with a bunch of protection, and we get to verse, uh, chapter 24, verse 1, and Paul's on trial here before Felix. Now, of course, the Jews are the ones that don't like him, uh, because they've accused him of breaking the law and, and not uh, appreciating the, 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 the laws that Moses had set out. And so Paul's trying to help them that, see that's not the case. And so what we're going to pick up here in verse 21, it's, it's a very kind of specific type of law where Tertullius, Tertullus, who represents the elders, who represents even uh, in some manner, as Paul alluded to, the Jews from Asia that aren't there. Uh, he said that in the very last three words of verse 18. They're the ones that are accusing and they don't even show up. But he's representing all these Jews saying, here's what Paul has done. He's broken these laws. Uh, and so Tertullus stands up and you can see in verse 2b starts his his reply to Felix, who's going to hear this case. Now, remember, verse 22 tells us that Felix has a rather accurate knowledge of the way. So he's not, he's not completely um, in the dark when it comes to understanding who Jesus is and how he fulfills the Old Testament prophecies. He's not a Christian. Uh, he's, he's a Roman governor. But nevertheless, uh, Luke at least describes him by saying, he has a rather accurate knowledge of the way. So that's a pretty big deal for Dr. Luke, who is a believer, to describe Governor Felix, a Roman, uh, I guess a governor that doesn't have any, he's not a believer, to say he has a rather accurate understanding. So as he's, this is going on, Felix is someone that can hear this. We'll, we'll get into some more background about Felix in a little bit. So you can see in 2B, it says, since through you. So here's Tertullus uh, starting in that little uh, parenthetical statement, starting in 2B, um, since, not parentheses, not parentheses, but uh, quoted, since through you we enjoy much peace, and since by your foresight, most excellent Felix, reforms are being made for this nation in every way and everywhere, we accept this with all, with, with all gratitude. Now, Tertullus starts his speech out with this just a massive lie. This is a hot lie. Like, this is not true at all, at all. Uh, as a matter of fact, the Jews hated Felix's reforms. There were constant fights between the Roman government and the oppressed Jews because of what's going on. So um, he is totally buttering him up to try to get him to listen to what he's saying. And he starts off with a lie, which if you juxtapose it just by Paul, whenever uh, Paul starts his in, the ver- in verse 10, kind of middle of verse 10, knowing that for many years you have been a judge over this nation, I cheerfully make my defense. That's true. You have been a judge over this nation. <laughs> and not commenting whether I like it or not, but you have been a judge over this nation for a while. I'm going to start my defense. You can just juxtapose the intros between Tertullus and Paul and see that Paul is striving for truth, although certainly it's a little bit of a buttering up. Hey, you've been here for a while. I'm glad to be here in front of you and make, this, make my, my defense. And that's probably true, although no one really wants to be on trial. So you can juxtapose those two and just see that there's a little bit of difference between Tertullus and Paul, even in the intros. Now, Tertullus is going to launch into four accusations of Paul, uh, half-truths that don't tell the full picture or just outright lies. Uh, You can see him starting 
uh, in four and following. But to detain you further, we want to get your kindness to hear us briefly. Four, we have found this man to be a plague. This is accusation one, that he's just a pest. He's a pest and a plague, and we're tired of him being here. We don't like it. So his, his bothersomeness around, around the city is bothering us, and he's a pest. The second accusation is that he stirs up riots. You can see who stirs up riots among the Jews um, throughout the uh, throughout stirs up riots among the Jews throughout the world. So the second one is that he stirs, stirs up riots among the Jews while Paul is frequently, and the truth is, this is kind of one of those half-truths, while frequently Paul is in around riots, and these riots are usually because of Paul, uh, there's a difference. He's not organizing them and saying, hey, let's, let's get a big riot together and everybody try to kill me because I want to die today. Uh, there's a difference here. It's not, Paul's not the organizer of the riots. It's that other people are organizing in order to kill Paul. So it's the way Tertullus makes it sound like is that Paul's the one organizing all these riots to get everybody together to kill himself. That doesn't even make sense, right? So that's the second uh, accusation he makes. This, the third accusation, and it, it's, a, it's a big zinger, uh, and you can see that Paul definitely ad- addresses that and tries to, tries to correct it, where he says... Um, that he's also, this is the end of five, a ringleader of the, quote, sect. I, I quote this because it's not, not a good way to say it. Sect of the Nazarenes. This is absolutely terms of derision, right? First, to call it a sect is not good. Also, uh, to say a sect of the Nazarenes. You know, if you've been in, read the Bible, can anything good come out of Nazareth? So they, 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 Nazareth is the podunk town that nobody likes. And so whenever that's the case, they're a sect of the podunk town that nobody likes and no one thinks is important. A sect of the Nazarenes. And he calls it a sect. So this is actually a big deal because Roman law did not allow for new religions. They did not allow for new religions. And so Tertullus is trying uh, trying to introduce Paul's thoughts and belief system as a sect of the Nazarenes, as a new religion in order to get Paul in trouble and to, because he's beginning what would be a new religion. They, they'd, they'd come in and so they're allowing Jews to be there. It was an existing religion, but you're not allowed to start anything new. And so Paul's, as, we, as we're going to see, is going to go to great pains to try to help them understand that Jesus is not a new religion. Instead, he's a fulfillment of Judaism, which is not... Uh, so Judaism, would real, where it is now proper, would be the new religion because it's morphed into something that it's not uh, a fulfillment of the Old Testament prophets. And so this is a, this is a pretty heavy charge that Tertullus is making. He's, he's basically started a new religion, Tertullus, and that's not what's supposed to happen. So he's, he's a sect of, the, of these Nazarenes. So that's the third accusation that he makes. And then the last one, which is just an outright lie. So he half-truth, half-truth, paint it wrong, make it sound bad, uh, but when it's not really. And then just top it off with just a huge lie in verse 6. He even tried to profane the temple, but we seized him. We've read that, and we know that that's not the case. Um, there was a Gentile that was near him while Paul was going in the temple that didn't go in the temple, and everybody, these Jews, just assumed that Paul took him in uh, into the temple, which he didn't. So uh, he even tried to profane the temple, but we seized him because we're just so awesome. We saved the day for God by making sure that that guy that really didn't go in, didn't go in. By examining yourself, you'll be able to find out... Um, Everything about him for which we accuse. And so he leaves it at that. Those are his four things that he says. Uh, And then you've got in verse 9 where it says, The Jews also joined in the charge affirming that all these things were so. So they're not truth tellers as well. So you've got this first kind of four charges. And so here's here's the persecution that's coming to Paul, which is people are saying false things about him. Half truths that make it sound bad whenever that's really not the case or just outright lies. Encouragement. 
When you're doing the work of the evangel, whenever you're doing the work of telling people the gospel, it's okay to know that this is going to happen. It should be an expectation of ours that there will be opposition to us when we're telling people about Jesus, either from the person we're telling or the surrounding parties that do not appreciate the fact that we are saying there's not many ways to God. There's one way to God, John 14, 6, and it's only through Christ. And yes, the gospel is offensive from 2 Corinthians. We know that. To, to those that are hearing it and that are dying, it's the aroma of death. But the same message to those that are hearing it and going to become believers, it's the aroma of life. And the Lord is the one that separates the wheat from the tares, not us. But nevertheless... People will persecute you whenever you do the work of the evangelism. Now, the, of the evangelism. I sound super old. So, uh, all right, verse 10. Now, here we see Felix is just so cool that he doesn't even talk, right? He just nods at Paul, like, you can go now. Um, anyway, so Paul makes his reply here. And whenever he does, as I said, he doesn't open with a lie. But he also is going to make his defense. And he's going to have three different parts for his defense. You can see starting in verse 11, really down to verse 16, that he's going to say he didn't stir up riots. So he's refuting some of these things. He didn't stir up riots in the temple or the synagogue. And so he's not a religious lawbreaker. He's not a religious lawbreaker. Now, he's going to, in just a second, explain that he's also not a civil lawbreaker. But here he's trying to help understand, I'm not a religious lawbreaker. This guy's not telling the truth. Verses 11 through 16, see that. You can verify that it is more than 12 days when I went up to Jerusalem... When I went up to worship in Jerusalem, and they did not find me disputing with anyone or stirring up a crowd, either in the temple or the synagogues. So I wasn't doing that. I'm not a religious lawbreaker. And when I went into the, he, he said, when I went, I went to worship in Jerusalem, uh, and I, I wasn't uh, bringing people in there that I shouldn't. Neither can they prove to you what they bring up against me. Verse 13 is pretty crucial because he just helps us say, every claim that Tertullus is making can't be proved. He's lying about what he's saying. And then he keeps going and he says, by this, now there's a transition at verse 14, but this I confess to you that according to the way, what we can see here is that Paul is a master at seamless transitions from explaining to how he's not a lawbreaker into explaining the Christian faith. He immediately answers those questions in just a couple of verses. Now I know it's summarized by Luke, but, but then immediately, and we all should learn from this at any topic we're having, a seamless transition into uh, explaining the Christian faith. But I confess to you that according to the way which they call a sect, that's not how it should be. We're not a sect. We're not some new religion. Instead, we are fulfillment of what they think they are, the Old, the, the Old Testament scriptures, which would be Judaism, but now Christianity. We're fulfillment. Of, so we're the same religion. It just We're helping you understand that Jesus is the fulfiller of it. By this I confess to you that according to the way which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers. Now, when they hear that, they have to just be unbelievably angry because Paul is saying that you don't have a right understanding. Yes, you're Jewish and yes, I'm Jewish, but I have the right understanding of the fulfillment of the Old Testament scriptures that they're all found in Christ and you don't. And so he says after that, believing everything laid down by the law and written by the prophets. So he's here explaining to him that he is not a religious lawbreaker, that he actually believes everything written in the law and the prophets, having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept that there will be a resurrection. Again, bringing that back up again. He did that before when he was before the Sanhedrin. That there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. Both the just and the unjust. So as he's explaining his case and making a seamless transition to explain the Christian faith, he helps everyone there see 
There's no such thing as annihilationism for people that aren't believers. It's not that Christians go to heaven, and if you're not a Christian, you're just annihilated into nothingness, and you never ever receive uh, eternal life, especially eternal life that would be uh, that would be some kind of judgment towards God, to where you are um, you're being, as it says, tormented day and night. You can read all the all the different ways that Jesus describes it in the Gospels. Here he says that there is a resurrection resurrection of both the just and the unjust. Christians and non-Christians will be resurrected at some point, and then there will be a judgment, and the separation will come where Christians will be with Christ, and non-Christians will be banished. And so he's helping them see that it's, it's important to know that. So I always take great pains to have a clear conscience toward both God and man. Having clear conscience both God and man. So that's his first defense he makes, that he has a clear conscience, and he explains how he doesn't profane uh, the Jewish religion and the Jewish religious laws, and as he does it, makes an awesome, seamless transition uh, between explaining how he's not a lawbreaker into the Christian faith. Now, after that, in verses 17 through 20, he goes into how he's not a civil lawbreaker. Verse 17, now after several years, I came to bring alms. We, we know this, we've studied this very often on the, on the missionary journeys that Paul was on. He went all throughout the Gentile nation, uh, cities and picking up money and telling them, I want to bring this money back to Jerusalem with me to, to give to people who are poor. And the people who are poor would be Jewish. And so he's, he, we've, we've been over this several times going through the book of Acts. But he's collecting it from Gentiles in that missionary journey to come back to Jerusalem to give it to the poor people in, who are Jewish in Jerusalem to help the Jews and the Gentiles have a uniting factor to see that they truly are one in Christ. Uh, and so his idea was to collect these alms and do that. And he's giving that uh, explanation to them uh, before Felix. <clears throat> and after several years, I came to bring alms to my nation and present offerings. While I was doing this, they came, they found me purified in the temple without any crowd or tumult. But some Jews from Asia, they ought to be here before you to make an accusation should they have anything against me, which they're not. So they're, they're definitely a little bit uh, scared. Or else let these men themselves say what wrongdoing they found when I stood before the council. So here he's saying, I, I, I didn't break any laws either. I didn't have any crowd craziness or any tumult in, in the cities as well. Uh, I didn't break any laws. And then after he makes those two defenses, the third thing he does is conclude with a brief statement. But nevertheless, he wants to talk about Christ, the resurrection, and the importance of that and how it relates to the gospel. Now, we have a brief summary version of it. But nevertheless, when you bring up the resurrection of the dead, this is talking about Jesus in the most immediate context, when you say resurrection of the dead, you're talking about Jesus who was resurrected from the dead and all the implications and applications that come from Christ being dead, being raised, and then seated at, ascending to, the, to, to heaven and being seated at the right hand of the Father. Verse 21, um, other than this one thing, this is what I cried out when I was standing among them. And we saw this in chapter 23, verse 6, when he's with the Sanhedrin. Uh, now, when he did it, obviously, he knew that there were Pharisees and Sadducees in chapter 23. And he knew the Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection, and the Pharisees did. So he said this, and then they turned on each other, and the Sadducees kind of got drowned out by the Pharisees, who ended up defending Paul in chapter 23. But this is what he said. This is what I said. It is with respect to the dead uh, that I am on trial before you this day. So here, Paul has an unbelievable ability to turn the conversation to the resurrection of Jesus in all kinds of contexts that he's in. Here he has that even in a trial on his own life. So we should, again, as I've said, try to strive to do these things in our own life. Try to 
turn and, and move our conversations towards the resurrection as Paul does. Because um, it's a key doctrine of the, of, of the Christian faith. And it's one of the most important ones. Without the resurrection, you can read 1 Corinthians 15. But without the resurrection, there's just nothing. We eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we may die. There's, no, there's nothing for us. We, as Paul says in, verse, in chapter 1 Corinthians 15, if there is no resurrection, you don't just say, well, I'll just lead a good life for Jesus and try to do stuff for God. No, you are most to be pitied if there is no resurrection because you have given your life over to something fake. And so Paul uh, ends this this defense of his by pointing them what to be with the resurrection of the dead. Of course, that means for all of us, uh, because we all, there's a resurrection of both just and unjust, verse 15. And all that is uh, banking on or because of the resurrection of Jesus. So that's the first half. Now, um, we see here in that first half that Paul receives pretty heavy persecution because he's before Felix after several trials, uh, a couple trials already. So that's the first encouragement is that if Paul, the Apostle Paul, receives persecution, we will too. Now, we're going into this second one, and we're going to get to the second encouragement, but let's, let's take a look at some of these things uh, that are happening in the narrative. Verse 22, but Felix, having a rather accurate knowledge of the way, put them off. The them, since it's plural, has to be the Jews making the accusation, not Paul. He puts them off saying, when Lysias, the tribune, comes down, I will decide your case. So what is Felix's decision? Felix's decision is given to us in 22 and 23. Decision number one, wait for Lysias to arrive. Wait for Claudius Lysias to arrive. Now, the only question I have is, why? Why do you need to wait for Claudius Lysias to arrive? As a matter of fact, he's already, you've heard from him. He wrote you a letter Chapter 23, verse 26, down to 30. You've already heard from Claudius Lysias. What more information do you know? He's already said and given his, his thought in verse 29 that he's been charged with nothing that deserves death or imprisonment. So that the, only, uh, the only thing that we can deduce from that is uh, Felix has his mind made up, doesn't need Claudius Lysias' uh, input, but just wants to stall. He, it's a stall tactic to just make no decision and keep Paul there. Uh, so that's the first thing that we can see is that he wants to keep Paul there. We'll see in a little bit why he wants to keep Paul there. And it's just for bad reasons, selfish reasons. Uh, he wants to gain money. Verse 23, here's the second little decision that he makes. One, let's wait for Lysias. Two is this. He gave the orders to the centurions that he should be kept in custody and have some liberty. Uh, and that none of his friends should be prevented from attending his needs. Paul's a Roman citizen. And so he gets Paul the... The typical Roman citizen treatment of a prisoner, which is you're kind of on a house arrest. You know, strap on the ankle bracelet. You can come and go a little bit where he's going to actually be able to come and go over two years. We're going to see uh, friends can come and visit you. That means Luke can come and see you. Philip the evangelist, as we know from chapter six and we saw before, who lives in Caesarea and has, has been pl- preaching the gospel for many years. Philip the evangelist and his four unmarried daughters are there. They can all come and see you and have a party and whoever else you want that, you're, that are in the church in Caesarea. Bring your friends. That's fine. Those are his two decisions. Now, <clears throat> neither one of those uh, neither one of those are going to make the Jews happy. And, and really, I guess one of them makes Paul happy that he gets to see his friends. But, but having to stay there and wait for this Claudius Lysias, who never shows, who never shows, doesn't make Paul happy either. Those are his decisions. Now we come into uh, this last little section, verse 24 through 27, that I want to focus in on in these last few uh, moments of the, of the sermon. Verse 24, we see a mentioning of Felix and his wife, Drusilla. And 
uh, I want to I talk about these two in a way that uh, takes their, their lives and imports some of, the, some of the things that are going on in their life uh, into our 21st century and let us feel the, the same things that are going on in their life versus people that are in our life or maybe even you here and hear how Paul talks about the gospel of Jesus Christ with them. But it's good to know some things about them. Now, last week I hinted towards Felix that he wasn't necessarily a great guy, that he was corrupt, etc. More on him. Here's the more on Felix. Uh, he was a bit of a rags-to-riches story. He was pretty much, but not totally, a self-made man. Uh, so he, he was a slave. He was a former slave. And he came out of slavery and moved all the way to the governor of Caesarea for the Roman government. But there's also, when I say pretty much, there's a little bit of an exception, which is he had an older brother named Pallas, P-A-L-L-A-S, Pallas, that was good friends with uh, Claudius, who one day became a Caesar. And so Pallas, whenever Claudius became a Caesar, Pallas uh, appoints Pallas, uh, Claudius appoints Pallas to get a job. And Pallas is like, hey, my little brother, he wants something too. So he, he lets him be the, the governor of, uh, of Caesarea. And so Pallas was given a job and got his brother, Claud- uh, Felix, a, a, an appointment also. So, but nevertheless, he still was, I mean, if you think about it, he was a slave who bought himself out of slavery and now is a governor in Caesarea. That's, that's a pretty, pretty amazing thing. He was not raised in any kind of religious background. Uh, he was a pagan as he was raised. Uh, one, one Roman historian, uh, Tacticus, first century Roman historian, says this about Felix. A master of cruelty and lust who exercised the powers of a king with the spirit of a slave. So he was, he was just a cruel man. Just a wicked, hedonistic man. Um, and... He has a wife uh, named Drusilla who grew up as the quote-unquote religious one. Uh, Now, Felix is on his third marriage. Perhaps this is the last. Uh, I I, I don't know the history on anymore. I think this was his last. There wasn't any uh, thing that I could figure out. But um, he's on his third marriage with Drusilla, uh, and he's not religious. So if we just import that into today, uh, describing men... Or it could be women as well uh, in the 21st century. These are people that didn't grow up with a religious background. These are people that are uh, super um, pursuing their career, money. And when it comes to living their life, they're hedonistic. They, they give in to all kinds of the world's lusts. And uh, they're cruel to people. Uh, and they have no religious background nor cares for any type of uh, thoughts towards Jesus whatsoever. So that's Felix. And you know, and I know, tons of people like that. We'll see how Paul talks about the gospel with Felix. But you also have Drusilla. Uh, here's some things on Drusilla. She was raised religious, uh, if you will. Raised religious. You can see in verse 24, uh, after some days, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish. So she was raised Jewish, uh, raised religious, but she had strayed terribly away. Now, um, there's reasons why. Number one, uh, it's well-known throughout most commentators and historians that Drusilla had uh, an incomparable beauty about her. Uh, she was unbelievably beautiful. That, that set her apart completely from most people. Um, not only that, she sought the allure of man uh, and power as well, and she was on the quest for it continually. One commentator, Hughes, says she was unusually beautiful, and her ambition and lust equaled that of her new husband. 
So she had, in a lot of ways, the same kind of uh, hedonistic impulses towards lust and power, just like Felix. So you think match made in heaven, match made in hell? I don't know, like not a good match, right? But they love each other because they have a lot, lot in common. However, he was very uh, irreligious, didn't grow up at all. I, I'm not sure what to say there, so I'm um, sorry about that. So like he, uh, he didn't have any religious background, and she did. Now, um, she's on her second marriage. Her first marriage, she didn't find exciting enough. And so since that's the case, she worked her magic to leave her first husband and go for Felix. Now, um, incidentally, commentators were saying that in, in some way, I'm not sure, one commentator said it was Felix that used, and one commentator said it was her, but in some way, uh, there was a magician in somehow that was used to woo one to the other. One co- Stott said it was, it, was, uh, it was Felix that used the magician, uh, Thomas, I think his name was, to woo uh, her, and one other commentator, I think it was Hughes, that said, actually, it was Drusilla that used the magician to woo uh, Felix. How you use magicians to woo people, I don't know. But they just said that's what they... I think the point is that they, they'll go through any tactic to try to get what they want to woo these others. So uh, nevertheless, what we know is that Felix didn't have any problem going after a married woman. And, and uh, Drusilla, as a married woman, didn't have any problem leaving her boring husband for what she thought would be more interesting, um, Felix. And so... The point is, though, she was raised as a Jewish, which means she understands some things about the scriptures, as well as Felix. He has, he has an accurate knowledge of the way, which came from being married to Drusilla. So even as a pagan, he has some kind of understandings of what the Bible and who Christ is. Not like her exactly, but nevertheless, uh, she also knew the scriptures, the applications, uh, but did not like it when, when conviction would come. So she strayed away and pursued power and lust. So that's, that's who they are. And it says, after some days, uh, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish, and sent for Paul and heard him speak about, quote, faith in Christ Jesus. Faith in Christ Jesus. So um, if there was only some kind of text that would give us more detail about whenever he says he spoke of faith in Christ Jesus, then we would get some kind of insight into what Paul said to these. Oh, we do have that, right? Paul wrote Romans for us, and he gives us all kinds of insight on what faith in Christ Jesus means to him. We'll just look at one. There's, there's lots we could go to. I'm going to go to Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3, and uh, we'll see what faith in Christ Jesus uh, in, a, in a large kind of manner means for Paul. Now, we're going to drill in on, because when you say faith in Christ Jesus, you talk about the gospel. Paul, there's many ways to apply that in many different contexts according to whoever you're talking to. And Paul is going to take this big, broad understanding of what faith in Christ Jesus is and contextualize that gospel to Felix and Drusilla, which we're going to see. But here's the big, broad explanation of what faith in Christ Jesus is, starting at chapter 3, verse 21. But now... The righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. That means Jesus. Jesus has been um, manifested to us, a righteousness. So if you want to be righteous before God, you can keep the law, but good luck because you'll never do it. Or you can be righteous before God another way, which is don't try to keep the law. Instead, say, I am wholly unrighteous, and I need Jesus' righteousness to be applied to me and my unrighteousness to be applied to him. When on the cross, the great exchange, as Martin Luther happens, and now I'm right before God because Christ Jesus gave it to me. And that is done by 
faith in Christ Jesus. Trusting that Jesus' death on the cross should have been mine. And it's counted as mine. And therefore, I get his righteousness. So this is what he says. Now the, manifest, the righteousness of God has been manifested to us. The righteousness of God through faith in Christ Jesus. Literally a word-for-word match from what, the way Luke says it. Through faith in Christ Jesus for all who believe. So who gets in on this? Trust in Jesus. Believe in him. And you are now a believer. And then it says, for there's no distinction. For all of sin, you probably know this one, falling short of the glory of God. Everybody sins. And so everybody needs to be forgiven or, or made righteous or justified. And all are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation. This is a, this is a, a wrath absorber. Jesus was the wrath absorber from God. He gets all of the things that we deserved in death and his righteousness is given to us. He was put forward as a propitiation by his wrath to be received by faith. So we receive that by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. The Old Testament, uh, this hadn't happened yet with the old people that had lived. It was to show his righteousness at the present time that he might be the just. He might be just because he's not just sweeping sin under the rug and the justifier. And he's actually the one that saves us um, of the one who has faith in Jesus. So Paul explains to us this, what this gospel message is in faith in Christ Jesus. Now, that is the gospel. That's the broad explanation of the good news of Christ. And so what does Paul do? He takes, he takes the gospel and then he contextualizes it straight to Festus and, and Drusilla. Notice what he does. There's all kinds of things that you could talk about in the gospel. Uh, what we just read in Romans 3, 21 through 27, 6, 6. Here's what he says to them. Knowing everything that we just know about Felix and Drusilla that I've painted. This is what he says. Um, Heard he speak about faith in Christ Jesus. And as he reasoned about, here it is, three things. He says three things, the three facets of the gospel message contextualized to Felix and Drusilla. Righteousness, self-control, and the coming judgment. (laughs) Well, those are three pretty good facets to pick when you're talking to those two, right? What a smart missionary. What, what an insight you have, Paul. You know your audience. And so a big, huge takeaway application we can have is since we know that we're supposed to pre- preach the gospel, the first thing that we see is that people are persecuted. Um, when we're looking at this section, we should know our audience and the facets of the gospel message that apply to them and then proclaim it boldly. Paul could have easily just tried to whitewater it or make it sound so, so whitewater, whitewash it. Pretty up, you know, whatever the words are. Make it sound really nice and not too offensive, right? He knew exactly who they are. He knew exactly what they needed. And he didn't try to, like, say it super nice so that they would still be nice to him and say, Oh, Paul, you're such a good guy. We love you. You believe what you believe, but that's okay. We're all good, right? Paul knew exactly. And he boldly proclaimed the most, maybe the most uh, three controversial pieces of the gospel he could get to him, which is, he reasoned about righteousness. You need to be righteous. This righteousness uh, in the Greek can also mean justice, meaning you're not a God that practices justice at all. As a matter of fact, it's pretty well known. We know Tertullus lied. You're a pretty terrible guy when it comes to being a governor. You need to learn justice, and you also need to be made righteous. You're not righteous, and you don't practice justice. The second one is self-control. It's known around the Roman world how much self-control you lack, uh, especially that you're on your third wife and Drusilla's on her second and the magician and whatever. You know, like, y'all don't have self-control. 
And all that's a big deal because there's a coming judgment that's going to happen one day. And this coming judgment is not going to be pleasant for you if you're not a believer in Jesus. And so he knows his audience. He knows the facets of the gospel message that we see in Romans 3, which we could go anywhere. Uh, and, and he applies it directly to them. He, he contextualizes the gospel directly to them. So the second facet of, of doing gospel ministry is one we should know that there's persecution. The second is that we should contextualize it in a way uh, that even though we do it, it might be rejected. Here's what happens. Um, we can't just speed through the fact that he used these three things, righteousness, self-control, and coming judgment. And here's what happens. What's their, uh, what's their reaction? Well, look at the next three words. Felix was alarmed. Luke's being nice there, but I have a feeling that he was probably more than just alarmed. Probably kind of ticked off like, who are you to say about me and my lifestyle and Drusilla? This is, this is Big D. I love her. Don't make fun of her. Like, you can't do that. And so uh, he's alarmed. And what does he say? Go away. Go away. So as we're seeing, as Paul proclaims the gospel, there's, there's and I'm going to give four reactions here to the gospel. And we can... Or you can know people that have one of these four reactions to the gospel. And whenever you see it, just realize, uh, if Paul has the gospel rejected, you might likely will. Paul was persecuted. Now even Paul is persecuted. But even when Paul preached the gospel, he was rejected. So you know that you can also, when you preach the gospel, if Paul was rejected, you might be rejected. And here's a list of four different ways that they can, people reject it. He does all four. So he has the, you know, the, Hat trick plus one. So here it is. Um, one, go away. What do they do? They tell him to go away. So the first thing that can happen is that people can just reject the message. Uh, one commentator says this. There's two tragedies that are possible for every human soul. This is regarding people that just say, go away with that stuff. I don't want to hear it. You've probably heard this before. Two tragedies are possible for every human soul. The first tragedy is never trembling. Um, of coming face to face with one sin with a holy God. Blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. The second tragedy uh, of disregarding this is such spirit-produced trembling is that uh, the one whom God has brought to fear his soul must never turn away. In other words, there's two things that you can happen. One, that you never tremble, and the other is that if you tremble and the spirit brings that trembling, you just kind of say, ah, don't worry about it, I don't care. Those are two tragedies that can happen. And this particular person... uh, Felix and Drusilla, they tell him just to go away for the present. Now, the second reaction that can happen when we preach the gospel is, you can see this, when, you, when I get an opportunity, I will summon you. So someone can reject the gospel by saying, go away. Someone can also reject the gospel by saying, they play the I'll do it later game. Uh, it's not for me right now. It's my teenage years. It's not for me right now. It's college and I'm, I need to have fun. Uh, it's not for me right now. We're just getting married. I got to figure out my life first. And then I can do that later. They play the I, I'll do it later game. I can't. I can't even literally count how many times that I've been told by people that they think Jesus is awesome, but just not something I can't have in my life right now. That's just not, I I got too many other things that selfishly I need to get happening in my life that I don't want to accomplish, that I want to do, that that really mean a lot to me. Normally that's just a list of sins they they want to do before they want Jesus, which, you know, I understand since they're unregenerate that they don't see what they're saying, but at the same time, uh, we, when we hear that as believers, still don't don't just... uh, 
Do we don't just accept that on the face of it. Like, no, no, it's okay. Yeah, go, go send it up and get that done. And then when you're ready, come back to me. That's, that's good. We don't, we don't do that, right? Um, so some people want to play the I'll do it later game. So if that's you this morning, don't say, Jesus, go away. And don't say, I'll do that later. Uh, I've got some stuff I want to do in my life right now. Today's the day for salvation. Today's the day for salvation. Um, you don't play the I'll do it later game. I was a, I was a lifeguard uh, I know it's hard to imagine with this amazing physique at 43 that I was one day a lifeguard, but I was. I wasn't a very good swimmer, and so I didn't tell anybody that. But uh, I was, anyway, so I'm in, the, I'm in the lake one day at Camp McCall, and we require these, these tests. And so the guy gets in. It was lad camp, so it was first through third graders and dads, right? And so I was, I was on my little, you know, those little tube, these little floats things, and I was in the middle. Uh, they had a pretty substantial distance they had to go. And this guy gets in. I mean, he's, he was even more strong looking than I already look. You know, he was, he was a pretty, and I'm thinking, oh, this guy's got it. Because we see guys all the time, you know, hop in and they do it. And this guy hops in and he starts swimming and then he just comes up, starts screaming and just starts going crazy, right? What would it mean if I was the lifeguard that says, ah, he's just playing the I'll do it later game. He's just, he just wants me to come save him when he calls on me. Whenever he's ready, I'll just wait for him right here. Uh, and when he calls on me, then I'll go do it, right? That's ridiculous. And if I did that, I should be fired as a lifeguard, right? As soon as I see that, I struggle. Now, he did try to jump on my head, and I went under the water, and I gave him the tube. I'm like, stop jumping on my head. I don't want to drown. But like, the whole point is like, no lifeguard lets someone play the I'll do it later game, ever. If someone is dying, you save them. If someone has the potential of dying. And this is the exact same thing here. This is the, the danger of the I'll do it later game, which is you don't tell the lifeguard to not save you, that you'll let him know when you need to be saved. And neither, neither do you tell Jesus, I don't need to be saved right now. I'll let you know when I need to be saved. That's not how it works. That's not how God saves. He decides. And so if today's the day that you're playing the I'll do it later game, you don't decide that. You trust in Jesus now. You have no idea. I'm not trying to scare you or what if you died today? Like, I'm not doing that one. But, like, seriously, um, what if you died? No, I'm just kidding. Like, you don't, you don't decide that. You don't put off Christ. Uh, the, the next little reaction you can see is not go away, not I'll do it later, but the uh, I'll only become a Christian if it benefits me game. Go, again, go away for the present when I get you an opportunity, verse 26. At the same time, he hoped that some money would be given him by Paul. So, uh, now we're getting an idea of the, the indecision. You know, the, well, let's wait for Claudius Lysias to get here. We'll let his friends. And so really, he's just holding Paul in jail because he thinks Paul's got money and he's, he's just going to try to get a bribe. This is the point of keeping him there. But what he's doing is, uh, in essence, to the, when Paul's presenting the gospel, he's saying, if, if you can pay me some money, I'll keep you around. And that's what I'm really looking for. He's hoping that he's going to get a bribe. Without stating the obvious, um, when you say... I'll only become a Christian if it benefits me. Without, without stating the obvious here, uh, you do get a benefit. <laughs> There's a pretty big one, right? Um, hell's terrible, and who cares about money if you can have your sins forgiven and you aren't going to hell? That's a pretty big one. So you are getting a benefit. It's pretty big, and it's not a little small financial bribe from some probably not very rich guy named Paul in jail, a, a prisoner, but instead you get to know Christ to be forgiven by Christ, to, to know the riches and the depths of the gospel, that God would love you and save you despite of who you are. You get all these amazing benefits. And so to say that you only become a Christian if it benefits you doesn't get a full orb understanding. Now, there's a fourth option, and this 
isn't necessarily bad. I think it's bad here because it can be bad, which is uh, I'm going to do, I keep wanting information game. Look what he says. So he sent for him often and conversed with him. Now, on the face of it, the I want some more information game is not a bad one, right? If someone's, if you're preaching the gospel to someone or proclaiming the gospel or sharing the gospel and they say, I need more information, would you come and, and let me uh, converse more about that with you? That's, that's pretty, that's okay, right? In Felix's situation, I don't think it's, it's true. I think he's just wanting for it to keep going down the road so he can keep trying to get some money from him. Uh, and we're actually going to see it it's to, to curry political favor with the Jews where he's going to keep him in jail. To, you can see desiring to do the Jews a favor in verse 27. Felix left Paul in prison past the two-year mark, which he was only allowed to hold him for two years. And so he just kind of breaks his rules and keeps him there longer, curry in favor of the Jews. So, but nevertheless, we see here that keep information. I want some more information. This is not necessarily bad. If you're a, a non-believer and you say, and you know what, that is me. I just want more information. And don't say that's bad. It's not. It's not bad to want more information. I think it's bad for Felix because it's not really true. He's just trying to kick the can down the road. But if you have more information, that's fine. And if you are a believer and you're trying to share the gospel with someone and they want more information, keep doing it. Keep bringing them more information. Keep answering their questions that they have. Now, I still want to talk about this when he said, so he sent for him often and conversed with him. What do we think, if we had to take our best guess, what some of these conversations would look like? What would some of these, if we can take our best guess, looking at the scriptures of who Paul is, knowing that he contextualized the gospel to Felix and Drusilla, and he's given repeated, uh, ongoing conversations with, for sure, Felix and maybe even Drusilla, what is it that the Bible, if we know, if we know the Bible, how would Paul continually keep telling Drusilla and Felix, Felix, the gospel. And I just want to close with that. And here's why. Because perhaps you have, as, as I described Felix and Drusilla, found yourself kind of uh, relating to one of them or somebody you know relates to them. And I want to try to do my best to equip you to help those two people hear the facets of the gospel. Because we got the, the, the summary version and how you can preach the gospel to them. How you can preach the gospel to Felix. How can you preach the gospel to Drusilla? To Felix, this is what I think Paul would say. This is what I think you could say to someone like Felix. Didn't grow up religious, grew up a pagan. Uh, You will never attain what you want. You'll never attain what you want. Uh, You've been set free from slavery and you're a governor, but the truth is you're still a slave and you will remain a slave if you don't turn to Christ. You are a slave to sin. And Jesus demands righteousness and justice from you, Felix. He demands it. He demands self-control. But here's the truth, Felix. You are completely incapable of offering that to God. But there's good news. There's amazing good news. Right now, you care more about your career, your money, and salvation through Jesus Christ. As Jesus says, what does it benefit someone to gain the whole world yet lose his life? You are incapable of uh, being righteous and being in self-control. But here's the good news. Jesus died for you, and therefore, what you cannot produce, he has produced for you. So trust in Christ, and therefore, these things are now, what God demands, are given to you, offered to you as a free gift, Felix. And now you will no longer, not only be not a slave physically, but you will not be a slave spiritually. You will move from being a slave to sin into a slave to righteousness, which is good. 
And now you will be set free completely. And the righteousness and the justice that God demands from you, you are capable of because of Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit. Believe in Jesus today, Felix. I think that these are some of the ways that Paul would talk to him. John Stott says this, Certainly the, re- the release of Felix from sin meant more to Paul than his own release from prison. Imagine loving somebody that much as a prisoner, that I'll stay in prison, and I will not be released from this prison if you will one day trust in Christ and you will be released from yours. I think that's how he talked to Felix. But what does he say to Drusilla? He says this, Drusilla, again, these are speculations, right? So this is what I think he would say. This is what you would say to someone like Drusilla, or maybe you're Drusilla. Um, Drusilla, you know the God of your fathers, and you have strayed, but there is condemnation for straying, but there's no condemnation for the one who returns. There's no condemnation for the one who returns. You've given your heart and life over to men. You've given your uh, life to lust. But Jesus told a little story whenever he was alive about a good father. When he saw his child who had strayed away in the distance, when the child comes back, sprints out to his child puts a robe on the child, puts a ring on the finger and celebrates and said, let's have a party. My child has come home. And Drusilla, your father, who loves you more than any man ever in this world could, loves you and is saying, come home. Come home. And when you do, all the stains that you feel, all the guilt that you feel, all the dirtiness that you feel is washed away. And Jesus forgives you completely. Come home, Drusilla. Come home to Christ. I think these are the ways that Paul would try to lovingly contextualize the gospel to these two people. What happens? They reject Paul. Ultimately, we don't think that they are believers. Second encouragement is this. Even Paul was rejected when he did evangelism. And likely you will too. You'll be rejected. But it's okay. You can take heart. God is the God of salvation. Fudd's not the, the giver of salvation. He may proclaim it, but he's not the giver. I wish I was, but I'm not. Well, I wish it would probably be bad. I'd be throwing it out like Oprah. You get salvation. And it'd be, no, one would, no one would really choose Christ. So in the end, uh, Felix remained a fraud and had no interest in becoming a Christian. But instead... Uh, what we see is that he just wants to curry favor with the Jews by keeping Paul there. So he sent for him off to converse with him, but two years had elapsed. Two years of saying, let's have some more information, where Paul's on this house arrest for two, two years. Felix was succeeded by Portius Festivus. That's a nice way to say, uh, Claudius got tired of, of Felix's incompetencies and fired him. You fired. And then he said, let's bring in Portius Festus. And then uh, in desiring to do a Jews a favor, Felix, on his exit, left Paul in prison. Left Paul in prison, just trying to curry favor with them. These, these are the two lives of Drusilla and Felix, and they are tragic. Here's the thing. Ours don't have to be tragic. If you're a believer in Christ, you're not. It's not tragic. And if you aren't, yours doesn't have to end in tragedy today. God the Father is wooing you and calling you back to him. Let's pray. God, I pray for anyone here that doesn't know you that they would believe in Christ this morning. And for all that do, as we thought about the gospel and the facets of the gospel and the aspects of the gospel that apply to us, Lord, would you, would you just uh, cause us to see 
and understand this good news in a way that's uh, new and fresh every morning. And as we proclaim this good news to ourselves, God, would you increase our affections for Jesus and our desire to want to proclaim the gospel, even though persecution or even rejection of the good news might happen. Uh, That happened to the greatest of saints. May we continue to persevere. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.